when you get passionate about making a difference when you're young. And you see this now, I think, with the rise of teenage activists in America as well. It's all consuming. It is a sense of right and wrong and a deep passion about fighting injustice. And and that was me growing up. You know, my friends were sneaking out to parties and I was sneaking out to protests. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it. From the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Today, we welcome Shiza Shahed to Skimmed from the Couch. She is a social entrepreneur, activist, and investor. Before founding Now Ventures, a seed fund for mission-driven companies, and Our Place, an e-commerce company, Shiza co-founded the Malala Fund. Listeners may know Malala's story. I'm sure you do. She was a student and an advocate for girls' education in Pakistan and survived being shot in the head by the Taliban. Malala then became one of the most powerful voices for peace in the world. And by her side, Shiza harnessed the power of Malala's story and created a global nonprofit to advance the education of girls around the world. Shiza has focused her life and career on making the world a better place, and we are very excited to have her with us today. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. I'm so excited to be here. I love Skim. Oh, thank you. We were just saying this is our first interview of the decade, so what a way to kick off. I'm very curious. You have such an impressive resume, and you've done so many things that we're going to get into, but what is not on your LinkedIn profile that we should know about you? I think that I uh, show up a lot. You know, as I look at my career path and the things that I've done, it's very often been a decision to show up in the moment. If I were to draw a line through all of the startups, the projects, whether in the nonprofit space or investing, it's often been, you know, sparked by an article I read in the newspaper or somebody that came and reached out for help and asked me to join them or an issue that I saw in an industry. And I'll sort of decide maybe there's something I can do to help. And it leads me down this path of founding a nonprofit when I had no intention or going back to Pakistan to secretly create a, a summer camp for girls being denied an education or founding an ethical, sustainable cookware line. It always starts with this sort of fire in my belly, this passion, and, and very often a sense of anger um, when there's injustice. So yeah, I guess I would just call myself a serial shower upper. I like that. That's a good, That's uh, a great good thing on a card. Um, let's start with how you grew up, because my first question is, you have done amazing things that hopefully will have a lasting impact in the world. But what were you like as a kid? What was your family like? What kind of education did you have? You grew up in Islamabad. I was a quiet kid. I um, grew up in a loving home in the capital of Pakistan, Islamabad. I come from a modest, self-made family. I was fortunate. I was given a good education and a tremendous amount of, of support from my parents. But I was also growing up in a country that has many social challenges. It's ranked the second worst place to be born a woman. It has the second highest number of children out of school in the entire world. 
And I think I recognized that difference, that I had so much opportunity and, and most girls and women didn't, and I wanted to understand it. So I ended up spending Did a lot— Did you recognize that because your mom or your dad showed you that, or is that something you observed on your own? I don't think my parents pushed me towards it. They are charitable and generous. They actually run an orphanage now. But at the time that I was growing up, they were you know, working hard to build a life for their family. They didn't impose it on me. They sort of gave me a lot of space to be myself. Um, you said you were shy. I'm curious what would bring you out of your shell? I think the space to be myself. So my siblings are 10 and 8 years older and, and sort of big personalities. And so in their presence, I think I was very quiet. And then I got very involved in social activism work. And when I did that, um, it felt like it was my space to speak up. I sort of found my voice, you know, as this weird activist child, you know, organizing protests and giving interviews and getting really involved. I'm very curious growing up in Pakistan, and this was this was in a pre-9-11 Pakistan, the social opportunities for women were never strong, as you mentioned, with those alarming stats, but it was also different than the Pakistan that we've known in the last 20 years. You know, all kids dream about what are you going to be when you grow up? And some will say an astronaut, a president, an actor, a writer, a doctor. Did you dream like what you're going to be when you grow up? I wanted to make a real difference, particularly in my home country. I wanted to make things better for women, for people who were oppressed because they were perhaps of a different faith or within within Islam. I wanted to make a change through storytelling, through nonprofit work, through empowering and employing women. And you know, the thing about being young is you really believe in absolutes. And when you get passionate about making a difference when you're young, and you see this now, I think, with the rise of teenage activists in America as well, it's all-consuming. It is a sense of right and wrong and a deep passion about fighting injustice. And, and that was me growing up. You know, my friends were sneaking out to parties, and I was sneaking out to protests. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and yeah. It, Were your parents like, we wish she would just go to a party? I think so. <laughs> I remember once I, I snuck out to a protest, and uh, it was a small protest. So my face was photographed and put on the front page of the national newspaper. Oh, my gosh. I was, like, walking around the house hiding the newspaper. Oh and then my, my, <laughs> my dad got a phone call being like, is this in the front page of the newspaper? And they laughed about it, and that was when I knew that while they wanted me to be safe, I could probably get away with it as long as I was safe. You ended up coming to the U.S. for college. You went to Stanford. I'm really curious what that transition must have been like coming from Pakistan, thrown into the kind of heart of tech entrepreneurship. I'm just I'm fascinated what that transition must have been like for you. Yeah, it was, it was hard. Um, it was hard not because it was... American culture that was foreign to me. American culture is so pervasive. You know, I'd grown up watching Friends and Cheers and... Oh my um, gosh, you watched Cheers? No, you did not watch Cheers. I did. No, because I love Cheers and you make fun of me for liking it. For still watching it. Okay, well, yeah, I'm I watched, really happy you watched Cheers. I watched whatever was available. You know, they would package these TV shows and like 
send them over to Pakistan. And they would advertise all these American products that weren't available in Pakistan yet, like Domino's Pizza. I grew up being advertised Domino's Pizza. I've never had it. Oh, oh we would have ordered that for in you. In my head, it Wait, is the most. can we get it? Yes. <laughs> I feel like in my head, it's better than it will be. So It's actually pretty good. Really? Hmm. It's gotten a lot better. Um, college is a time when people are going to school to discover who they are, here you are already kind of a step ahead in terms of you know that you're passionate about things, you have grown up protesting, and then you fly across the world to go to school. Yeah, I mean, it was hard because it was this very undergraduate-focused experience, right? Stanford is a it's a college town. There's no city where you can sort of go out and you know, hang out with non-undergraduates who are doing other things and immersed in the world. I think I had one other Pakistani in my class. And I was sort of, you know, on this path and I felt very sure of it. Now, to be clear, I didn't have it all figured out, right? My path would change tremendously in the years that followed. Um, So it, it was hard on the one hand. On the other hand, it was this tremendous privilege. I mean, here I was now in a school that made me part of a exclusive club that put me in a class of 20 students with Condoleezza Rice the year she left office. So now I was this, you know, middle-class girl from Pakistan who had all this access and opportunity, and I felt that I had to use that platform to amplify the stories in Pakistan that I was hearing that perhaps other people in America weren't. So it, it sort of lit a fire in my belly that was, that was even deeper. Had your siblings gone to school outside of Pakistan? Yes. So my sister had studied in the U.S. for her master's. My brother had started out in Pakistan and then transferred two years in. When did you first hear the name Malala? So I was sitting in my dorm room at Stanford. I was reading up about the insurgency in Pakistan, which at the time was probably at its peak, sort of. What year roughly was this? Uh, 2009. Okay. 2008, actually, I would say. There's a town in the north of Pakistan that at the time had been taken over by a group linked to the Taliban. It's called the Swat Valley. And the Taliban had become increasingly violent, had begun blowing up girls' schools, and in January 2009 declared an all-out ban on female education in the Swat Valley. So here I was getting this incredible education less than 300 miles from where I grew up. Girls were being told they couldn't go to school, and it felt deeply personal And it felt like a story that I could amplify to make a difference. So I was studying it, reading up about it. And I came upon a diary written by a schoolgirl from the Swat Valley. And she wrote, this is my plea to the world, save my school, save my Swat Valley. And I was just shook to my core. I thought of the diary of Anne Frank. And I began to research to figure out who this girl was. And I got to know that she was a little girl named Malala, and her father, um, Ziauddin, ran a school. You know, I, I don't even recall how, but I called my contacts in Pakistan and said, I want to know who this girl is. And I remember calling her father from my dorm room at Stanford and just being like, hi, here's who I am. I want to help you. And he was and is this wonderful, generous man and was immediately like, yes, we need your help. And uh, we started to you know, sort of think about what we could do. And, and I came up with the idea of creating a secret summer camp for Malala and other girls like her. And Malala's father would be sort of the person who helps me find those girls and get parental permission to bring them out. And so that summer, I created this camp in my hometown. And I brought out Malala and, and 26 other girls 
I'm listening to you and like I immediately smile. I'm like, what an amazing story. And I think if I were in your shoes, would I have had the courage to do that? My heart is like, yes, you do the right thing. And and my brain is like, I'm an anxious person. And I would immediately be like, am I putting my life at risk? Am I putting my family's life at risk? Am I putting this young girl's life at risk by doing this? How did you think through that? By thinking through it. And I think for me, if the answers to any of those questions were yes, I wouldn't have done it. Now, that doesn't mean it's simple, right? I knew that if I did this camp in the Swamp Valley instead of Islamabad, I would be at risk. I knew that if I broadcasted on television, I would be at risk and the girls would be at risk. In fact, we had a sponsor for the camp and I dropped their sponsorship because they wanted to televise it. I created And I say created um, with mock quotation marks because I didn't actually create an organization. I I named an organization. Um, I called it Shajra Ilm, which means tree of knowledge. And I said Shajra Ilm is putting on this camp because I knew that if I said Shiza Shahid is putting on this camp, people could trace it directly. So I, I took all these steps and I knew with those steps that we would be safe. Um, and I wouldn't have done it otherwise. But you could only know these things when you start to ask the questions and get really close. What did your parents say when you told them? I think they sort of have learned to just come along for the ride and be there. Um, <laughs> so I've been lucky. I think we all can agree that our families feel that way Yes. Too. So after you graduated, you were working for a consulting firm in Dubai when you found out that Malala had been shot by the Taliban. Tell us about that moment. Yeah, so I had graduated. I got a job offer at McKinsey. I had a plan. I was, you know, going to do this business training, arguably amongst the best in the world, maybe get a fancy business school degree. And um, I had just landed in Egypt about a year into my career for a project when I got a text message saying Malala has been shot. And it was probably one of the most difficult moments of my life. Who texted you? um, It was a, a mutual friend, actually, who had been one of uh, the volunteers in in the camp. And I just sort of immediately called my mother and and I told her. And my mother, being awesome, just sort of drove three hours to the hospital where she'd been taken. Instantly, I was sort of getting news. Um, The anesthesiologist on the case happened to be a family friend, so I was, you know, communicating with him. Um, I had watched way too much Grey's Anatomy, so I was, you know, transcribing the notes and emailing the McKinsey healthcare practice to to make sure she was getting the right treatment, which was totally unnecessary. She was. But sort of I was doing everything I can to just sort of help. Then when she was airlifted for treatment, her family asked uh, that I come and be with them. Until then, my mother had been there. So I flew into Birmingham in the UK and, and was there. I want to take everyone back listening to this because now it's like Malala was used as a colloquialism in Booksmart. It's like she's become such a big part of our culture. But she was a kid who was shot. Can you take us back to putting this in perspective? How old ballpark were you at that time and how old was she? Was the media attention there at that moment or did it start coming later? So when we first met at the camp, I was 19. She was 11. And Um, the reason why I ask is just to put in perspective what we were all like at those ages. I feel like sometimes when you hear these stories, it becomes this thing where you feel like it's a fable, right? You and her were kids, both Mm -hmm. in the same sense. Yeah. um, When she was shot, she was 15. I was 22. And there was media attention, but it was the kind of media attention that this kind of story gets, right? It was 
girl shot by the Taliban. It was the story of a victim. It was not the real story. That was the story that we would come to share. And that's the story that's iconic because you hear stories of victims every day. You can probably turn on the news today and hear a story of, of someone who was shot or attacked. But what we did, I think, together was share a story that was far more true and that is far more representative often in all those other cases as well, but just is not told. And that was the story of a change maker. And that was a story of a family, of a father and a daughter. That was a story of girls around the world who are fighting for change. And I think it was that story that became iconic and the work that we did around it. About two years after Malala's shooting, she was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. And that year we thought she would win it. I mean, she didn't. What was that actually like to be in that moment with someone that you are close to who has gone through this, who's nominated for the most prestigious prize in the world, and you've been such a part of that story? Was it like, we should get this, this is ours, or we can't believe that this has happened? So she didn't win that first year. She won the year after. And she won the year after not because she was shot. She won the year after because we had built what had become a global organization. We had been on the grounds when almost 300 schoolgirls were kidnapped by Boko Haram. We'd been on the ground in the refugee camps in Jordan. We had gone to the United Nations and shared concrete proposals for girls' education because we'd done the work. When Malala's father got the call, he called me like right after I was a first person. And of course, it was this incredible moment. But, you know, you don't do the work for the prize. My my husband likes to share the story because we met at the beginning of the year when she won the Nobel Peace Prize. So it was January 2014, I want to say. He, when he met me on our first date, he said, so you're building this organization, you know, you were on this path where you wanted to be an entrepreneur and now you're running this nonprofit. Like, what's the goal? What does success look like for you? Well, he, and, he took all our questions. Right? Yeah. <laughs> he, he tells a story and he says, I, I sat back and I thought about it. And I said to him, you know, if I do my job really, really well, Malala and the Malala Fund will win the Nobel Peace Prize in 20 years. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. Um, and oh, so, my gosh. I, and so I guess at some level, I knew that what we were doing was important. And it was important not because of the prize itself. It was important because when a 17-year-old from Pakistan who chooses to wear a headscarf goes on stage at that pulpit that Martin Luther King and Mother Teresa have spoken from, that shifts something in our culture about what courage looks like. I have chills as you say that. Yes, completely. I want to go back to the two years prior. So she makes this miraculous recovery after being shot in the head. You have been emotionally impacted. You and her family decided to start a nonprofit dedicated to advancing the education for girls globally. And you were asked to be the founding CEO of this organization. You were about 23 years old. Yeah. I want you to kind of separate the passion you have for change, the advocacy that's clearly been with you your whole life. And I just want to talk about kind of the professional tactical skills for a second. Being a CEO is really hard. and You don't realize how hard it is until you do it. Uh, it's also really lonely, and you're constantly tested with skills that you think you have, and you realize, wow, those skills that I thought I was really good at, they're not even close to what I need them to be, and here are my holes that I need to figure out how to fill. At that moment in time, what were you really good at tactically, and what were your holes? So that was eight years ago. I look back now, and I think so many, so many holes, right? But I think what I was good at was figuring stuff out, and this is something that 
Um, I'd also learned at McKinsey, right? You're sort of thrown into entertainment and education and all these sectors and you have three months and you're going and presenting proposals to the CEO and you realize you can figure it all out. So that was something I knew. I was like, if I just ask the right questions and that's why I moved to New York to build this. I'd never lived in New York, but I moved here with a suitcase, you know, with no plan, no apartment. And I was like, you know, if I come to New York and I, you know, I'm surrounded by awesome women who are building things like the skim, I can probably email them and they'll probably write back and say, here's how you set up a 501c3 or here's how you think about brand for your nonprofit. So so it was probably that. It was probably just figuring it out. Did you ever get scared? Constantly. Did you ever let Malala and her dad know that you were like, I don't really know what I'm doing, but we're figuring it out. (laughs) Yeah, I did. When you run something big um, that gets big very quickly, I'm, I'm sure you both have experienced this. There's a lot of people who show up. When he first asked me to run this, I said, you know, I can't do this. I'm 22, you know. How am I going to make a living for one, right? And uh, and then I said, you know what? I really can't do it because if this gets big, I don't ever want you to think that I did anything that I that did not come from like a, the deepest place of concern and love and honor. And he said, you know what? If you lead this and you lead us to the depths of hell, I will never doubt that you did it intentionally. I think it was an act of love for me. And of course, down the road, things change and organizations grow. And in the beginning, it was very much an act of love and protection, so. So I had a great holiday break with the exception of two different airlines lost two different bags of mine and I lost my belongings. You're probably aware of this because Carly put it on our Instagram account many, many times. So I'm very upset about it. But what's really annoying is that I have to go buy new stuff and I also had to go buy new bras. While that is true, it does give you an opportunity to spend time with one of our favorite brands. Yes, I used Third Love. Third Love's bras are designed to fit you, not the other way around. It's designed with measurements from millions of women. So the bra styles are made to fit your life, like how you actually live. And I really like this. Every bra is made for your comfort with memory foam cups, no slip straps, and a smooth scratch-free band with a printed label. Again, common sense should be in everything. Yes. So if you're like me and lost all your luggage and you need a new bra, go to Third Love. Or if you just need a new bra, seriously, go to Third Love. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. And right now they're offering skimmers 15% off your first order. All you have to do is go to thirdlove.com slash skim right now. Find your perfect fitting bra, get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash skim, S-K-I-M-M, for 15% off today. When you are just chilling with Malala, what shows do you watch? What is she like? What are, what's your friendship like? You know, I've, I'm close to her, but I'm very close to her family mm-hmm. as well. So it's been a lot of, you know, going and eating delicious food with her mother, who's an incredible cook and her brothers who are just very funny and mischievous. And as for her, you know, she's also very funny. She has Mm -hmm. a great sense of humor. She loves cricket. I remember this one time we were at the Clinton Foundation together and uh, America Ferrera walked up and Ugly Betty had been one of those shows that was syndicated. Again, it's like, what shows are syndicated in the Swat Valley? So she'd grown up watching it and she was like, oh my goodness. And she's like, you're not Ugly Betty, you're Pretty Betty. (laughs) 
um, you know, because she's actually quite yeah, beautiful. Yeah, she's beautiful. So. Oh my God, I love that. Aww. So when did you decide to make a shift towards Now Ventures? So I had become interested in startups at Stanford, right? It was impossible not to. I had was surrounded by startups. And in Pakistan, I was seeing sort of the pitfalls of the nonprofit sector was very dependent on U.S. aid in particular. As I saw the pace of innovation around me in Silicon Valley, I was like, there's something at the intersection of this and what I've been doing back home. So at the point where I knew that, you know, Malala was safe and healthy, the Malala Fund was now an established organization, the question for me was, do I see my long-term career in the nonprofit space? And the answer was no. And I had been pulled back into the U.S. I'd been living in Dubai with McKinsey. I'd been pulled into building an organization. It was a nonprofit, but it was still a startup. So my peer group was women building companies. And I noticed how hard it was to raise money if you were a woman, if you were a person of color, if you were building something that had a mission, right, that you were brave enough to boldly articulate and perhaps stand by, even when sometimes it was a tough decision. So I I was more and more interested in playing a role there. I decided to create an angel fund to start doing that, to start investing in the people that I believed in. And I called it Now Ventures, and I was fortunate to partner up with AngelList out in Silicon Valley. And so over the last two years, I've invested in 10 companies, 80% female-founded. All of them have a social mission, companies like Parsley Health out of New York, wellness um, integrated with healthcare by Humankind, another New York-based company creating plastic-free products for the body and home, company out of uh, San Francisco called Pachama, which is a a platform for carbon credits. So it helps measure and trade carbon credits, helping businesses go carbon neutral. And it's been a really interesting experience, in particular, I think, helping startups think through their mission and their impact. What makes you want to write a check? So I invest early, and it's about the people, and it's about believing that the team has the skill to not just start something, but to grow it. And it's about knowing that their values are strongly aligned with my own in terms of they're going to make decisions that ensure that if this company succeeds, this the world will be a better place, right? So what is the outcome if this company is actually a success? And is that good for the world or is that bad for the world? And to me, that's a critical question. I also keep a lens on diversity. I've never called my fund a diversity fund. But as a woman, a person of color, my network is very diverse. And I tend to know amazing people who happen to be female. And so that's been another lens that I've applied. How do you balance when you're working with your portfolio companies and also with your company, which we're going to get to, the trade-off that comes with what you just mentioned, which is what's, what's good for the mission versus the bottom line? I think that you have to find the happy medium. And I think if you do that, then you're at a tremendous advantage, right? Young people are saying, I want to work for companies that give me a sense of purpose. Um, you know, half of millennials say they've ruled out working for a company because of its values or standard of conduct. 94% of consumers say they would switch brands to one that supports a cause. Now, of course, that doesn't apply if the prices are significantly higher or you know they're, they're not in love with the brand. So you still have to have a great product at the right price point. You still have to have product market fit. But if you're able to do that and give people a sense of purpose, because I think now our generation is really looking to find a sense of identity in 
how they consume. In the past, we found identity in family and faith and community. A lot of that in America, I think, has been somewhat eroded and we're disconnected and we're searching for a sense of purpose and we want that purpose in everything. We want our deodorant to be clean and made by women and free of plastics. We want our shaving razors to be talking about issues surrounding body hair and the shame that that's been used to create amongst women. And most of all, we want our work to be not just a place we come to pay rent, but to find meaning and belonging. And companies that are able to harness that, I think, are at a real advantage. What I will say is that takes thought. It's not as simple as business as usual and let's donate, you know, a quarter of a percentage to a charity that nobody's going to object to. It's really about looking at each part of your business and saying, how do I do this in a way that's better for the world? So if we're doing brand and design, you know, what are the politics of design? What are the ways in which the design choices we make can be used to amplify voices that have perhaps been othered? I think everything you're saying is made easier if you are in a position of leadership, if you are a founder or CEO and an exec team. If you are an employee at a company and you want to find that purpose, you want to create impact, you want to help, especially in a bigger corporate company, to start creating that change. For our listeners, what is your best advice about how to shepherd that? So speaking up, right? I mean, when I think back even just to my decision to start the Malala Fund, I called my boss up at McKinsey and I said, I've decided I've got to quit. And he turned around and said, okay, but let us support you for a while. Make the ask, right? I didn't even make the ask. So I think coming up with a concrete proposal and, you know, getting a group of employees excited about it and going to management and saying, hey, you know, I know we're doing a packaging redesign. I know of this really great female-founded firm that creates plastics-free packaging. It would really mean a lot to us if you would consider engaging them. What's a mistake that you hear or see people make when they try to instill impact in an organization? So sort of management or or employees? Employees. One is just not asking, right? Just assuming like, oh, you know, they don't care about this stuff. Often they do. And they're just, you know, there's so much going on, right? So if you go with an idea that's actually actionable, often they will care. The other is, is sort of not giving people a chance, right? Back to that same thing, right? Which is like, oh, I would go to them, but this is not their thing. Or, you know, they're just motivated by money. So I think this othering that can sometimes happen between employees and management that I've seen as well, but actually trying, like actually giving people a chance and saying, hey, I don't know if this is an issue you care about, but I'd love to raise it with you. I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Or if you don't care about it, if you can't do this, will you explain to me why before I just assume that you don't care? When we started talking, you mentioned the tendency of young people to think about things in terms of absolutism. I'm going to say we're all, I'm going to give us the benefit of the doubt that we're all, we're all still relatively young. You in particular. How do you think about that now? I think I see things in a far more nuanced way. You know, when I was young, I thought I could end human suffering. I know that I can't end human suffering. However, I also know now that some of the smallest things I've done have become some of the biggest things I've done, right? So starting a summer camp in a remote part of, you know, 
Pakistan for a, a handful of girls, I still remember, um, I think I applied, I want to say to UNICEF for funding for it. I needed like a couple of hundred dollars to cover the costs of accommodation and food. And for larger proposals, they say, well, how is this sustainable? Which is a question I would ask anyone, like, how does this continue and sustain and go on? And I said, well, it is, and it's really intended to address this one issue and raise the profile of this one issue. And it became one of the most sort of scalable, sustainable things I've done. So I think just, you know, holding room for the unknown. In our businesses, we talk about growth through our business plans and our technologies. And I've learned that scale can be so much more unpredictable, that it often comes from a single idea, story, or act of courage, just keeping the space for that. Talk to us about your most recent idea. Yeah. So a couple of months ago, I launched a company, a startup called Our Place. I co-founded it with my husband and a friend of ours. It's a mission-driven e-commerce company that creates products for the kitchen that are rooted in culture and tradition. And we're trying to think about impact in everything that we do, whether that is removing plastics from our packaging, sourcing ethically from artisans and women-owned factories, but most importantly, through our storytelling. So I'm an immigrant. I'm Pakistani. I'm a woman. I'm a person of color. I'm a Muslim. Like, take me to parts of this country, and I'd sort of be very much the definition of the other. And I've made my home in this country, and I love being here. I came to this country right as Obama, President Obama was being elected, and I have now stayed in this country in the recent political climate. And I've seen this division and the sense of separateness and otherness that's arising. And, and what I've always believed is when you cook a meal together and you sit around a dinner table, you don't just know who somebody is, you know who their grandmother was or is. Home cooking, cooking together, eating together is this bedrock of culture and dignity and love. And it's something that we're losing in this sort of convenience culture. So we've been creating products and telling stories that challenge that, that inspire people to cook more. And with each of our collections, we partner with a community and put a nuanced lens on a story and a culture. So we partnered with Mexican-Americans um, around Christmas and celebrated Noche Buena. We partnered with Chinese-Americans around Lunar New Year. We're moving forward to talk about Muslim-American culture and the diversity of that and the different foods that are included in Muslim-American culture, like soul food. Most people don't realize a lot of Muslims eat soul food. I, l I love this idea, and I am very excited to see how this continues to grow. I'm fascinated. What is it like? You've been a solo founder. You've been a co-founder. What is it like to be a co-founder with your husband? It's really great. Um, we've are we've you talked sure? about it. So <laughs> it's great. Unless it's terrible, right? Right, and, yes. And that was our thing. You know, my husband and I, we've always connected deeply on work and on ideas. And we've always been each other as confidants. And we always were like, should we do this or will it completely mess up everything? And eventually we just did it, mainly because we loved the idea and we felt we could both bring different pieces of the puzzle together better than anybody else we knew. Being an entrepreneur, doing something that is so consuming, it's all of you, right? It's all of your brain. It's where you are, the highs, the lows. And to be unable to share that with your partner, I think, can be challenging. And in the past, when I've gone off and done things on my own, and I'm traveling, and I'm speaking, and, you know, I'm in, you know, Paris for two weeks on my own, doing something super exciting, and now I've come home, and, and he wasn't there, I found that a lot more challenging than sort of being side by side. And I see a lot more couples, siblings, starting companies together. And I think when it's good, it's really good. Knock on. Knock on. on. We're knocking yeah. on the wood. Right. 
Okay, we're gonna go to our last and favorite segment, the lightning round. Drum roll. Okay. We ask you questions, you answer as fast as you can. First job. McKinsey? Was there like a job before that? My first I, job was like babysitting. I mean, you know, it's. So, I'm sorry, this is a lightning round, but I have to give context, right? Like <laughs> You're failing the lightning round. It's different in Pakistan. It's not like as common. Right? It's also just not as safe. Like Nobody just went and worked at the Starbucks. No, there was no Starbucks. It would be great if there was a Starbucks. Um, but you, I volunteered. My very first internship was handing out medical supplies in a women's prison. Wow. Worst job. Oh, my goodness. I haven't had that many jobs. I don't know. I haven't had that many jobs. Okay. Yeah. When's the last time you negotiated for yourself? All the time. But usually now with vendors, so the other way around. What's the most recent show you binge-watched or streamed? The Spy. Oh, what's that? Oh. So good. With uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. Yes. Oh, I heard it's really good. So good. Oh, okay. Watch, watch it with someone. It's a little heartbreaking. Okay. What's your biggest vice? Sugar. Me too. Yes. What's the last book you read? Uh, I've been streaming the lectures of Ram Das right now since he just passed away and his words are really, really wise. Does Malala skim? Does she interact with the skim? Oh, I don't know. She should. Right? Yeah. Everybody should. I think so too. What's your shameless plug? From ourplace.com, go to the website, buy presents and buy products for yourself that support great causes. Shiza, thank you so much for all of your work and being here today. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 